Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, and of course, we are off-site, not in the radio station these days, as always. Uh, today, I, my special guests uh, are incredible, but my first, I have to say, is a feisty, uh, kick-ass feminist, a journalist who has written for everything from Washington Post to Rabble to the National Observer, you name it. Uh, and uh, who's great on Twitter, so absolutely follow her there. Um, and of course, no other than Nora Loretto. So I'm so delighted, Nora, to have you on the show. It's great to have you here. I'm such a fan. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's very cool to meet you uh, through our screens and through our ears. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk, um, first of all, about you. How did you get into journalism? And just tell us a little bit of your story. Sure. Um, I'm not sure at what moment I got into journalism. I have a memory of writing a front page version of the Toronto Star uh, talking about how unpopular Brian Mulroney was as prime minister. Um, and I'm only 36. So I was probably about five or six years old when I did that. <laughs> um, so I've always been uh, interested in news, um, very interested in news. My, my father uh, was a teacher librarian. And so I grew up receiving uh, an incredible number of magazines to our house, about 200 uh, subscriptions that came right to our house. And, uh, you know, everything from uh, the, uh, the Economist to Entertainment Weekly to People to Adbusters. I mean, we had it all. And it was um, it was very lucky because my father would read it and categorize what was in the magazines and bring it to the high school that he taught at for, um, for his students to be able to take out. And I got to read him first. <laughs> so we talk about the privileges that are offered often to, um, to young people because their, their parents have really wonderful jobs. That was, that was my privilege that, and, and having easy access to reference books when I had to write an essay. <laughs> so where did you go to school after that? How did you actually get into the trade? Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I was active in, in high school, the, uh, uh, the, the student newspaper, which had the horrific name, the Omnia Extares. And so I was very proud to change that name to the Royal Roar, which I thought was much more obvious for a, a high school newspaper. And um, from there, I got into Ryerson's journalism school. And so I spent two years full time in Ryerson journalism and then uh, three years part-time and then had to drop out because you can't finish that program part-time. And I went part-time because I got very involved with the student movement. And so for the years that I was at Ryerson, I was mostly elected at the Ryerson Students' Union. And um, while that started to wind down and in my future in journalism looked pretty much like it was never going to happen. And you got signals. I got signals from the industry saying like, <laughs> you're crazy. You can't do that. Um, I was given uh, the opportunity to have a radio show at CKLN, which was the, uh, you know, the classic homologue radio station to this one, of course. And, um, and that was in the final days of CKLN. So I was, pro I was probably being used actually to help fill the station's gaps to try and save our license from the CRTC. That was a failure. Um, but I did have a morning show, which was really fun. And, um, and then I became the editor-in-chief of the Ryerson Free Press, which was a monthly Ryerson-based community newspaper. And we were unabashedly left-wing and we were the only paper that paid. And so we were able to pay a little bit of money to all of our contributors. And, um, and that was wonderful. And so I was swept up by my partner getting a job in Quebec City, 
I left everything behind in Toronto and basically where I am today is the result of building a, a career of being an Anglophone who could not work in the mainstream media in our like two Anglophone uh, options in this city and had to look uh, outside and, and had to look really outside, outside Canada uh, to do the work that I've been doing. And you've been an avid unionist as well, Nora. Talk about that because... Lord knows there's not a lot of jobs in journalism these days, but, but and certainly not a lot of good union jobs. Talk mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was introduced to union politics very young. My parents were, were uh, active in their union, which is the Ontario Catholic, English Catholic Teachers Association, OECTA. Uh, and I came to age during the Harris years. So, you know, the days of action, I, I remember those very well. Um, I remember being so sad that my parents wouldn't bring me to the, the the North Bay Day of Action because we had family in North Bay and I felt like it was a betrayal that I was relegated to do the Hamilton Day of Action instead. And um, and and so the union movement for me was always a very obvious uh, source of activism and, and of power, really. And as I got older, you know, that question of power and authority was always very uh, front and center uh, for, for everything I did. And, um, and so it was very natural for me to find myself uh, as a labor activist, uh, oddly first as management, uh, as a student union representative at a, at a CUPE local, um, and then becoming member of that local and, and becoming more interested in the role that unions play in democracy, you know, being that democratic force that has the power and legitimacy that can actually challenge democracy and often in a way that's stronger than even the official opposition can because it's outside and it doesn't have to um, bow down to decorum and rules and committees and all this stuff it has its own democratic structures it has its own membership and it has its own legitimacy to force governments to listen to change their minds or to make different decisions uh, just since we, you mentioned uh, Ontario English Catholic teachers and we're talking unions uh, in Ontario, as you're probably aware, we had the government announcement about the schools opening. Mm-hmm. And I gather you're a parent as well. Uh, but anyway, schools are opening. Hundreds of thousands of kids and teachers uh, will be going back in. It, it, I, I mean, this is a matter of weeks, really, yep. from now. And into schools where there's already overcrowding and they can't open the windows in some of those classrooms. Um, yeah. And of course there's all, there's the whole thing about little kids wearing masks and social distancing, like what? Um, so maybe I, I just to get a quick comment on that because that's, that's happening and that's top of the line news story right now in Ontario. Totally. Yeah. I've been watching this very closely because, you know, I'm in Quebec and Quebec has a little bit more uh, experience with this, right? We, even though the infection rate was still quite high, the province opened its schools in May and it was very, very, very controversial. They gave uh, the unions a matter of days to make it work and the unions pulled it off. And um, in Quebec, I mean, it's quite an interesting place where the, the, the epicenter of the illness was Montreal and then the rest of the province has had, uh, you know, moderate level of infection. It's not, it's not at all the way it's been in Montreal. And so they started with outside of Montreal and then they opened schools within Montreal. And it was a success. I mean, the, the infection rates within the schools were the same as the infection rate in the community, which meant that the schools were not driving uh, higher infection rates. But the difference between Quebec and Ontario, a um, huge difference, well, one, it, it didn't include high school students. And so we're really just talking about K to six because high school starts in grade seven. And, um, and class sizes are so much smaller. And so I have two six-year-olds. Uh, they were in the same class and their, their class size in you know, kindergarten 
is 19. And that's the max. That's as big as a class can get at that, that age. My niece who goes to school in Etobicoke uh, had 30 kids in her kindergarten class. And so, you know, the, the, the rules in Quebec was that, you know, you had to respect social distancing. And so the desks had to be spread out to respect social distancing. And the cap was 15, regardless of the size of the classroom. So in my kid's case, the classroom could only accommodate 12 kids. Now, there were enough of parents that kept their kids home that they didn't have to create like an overflow situation, but we were still only talking about a handful of kids, not 10 or 15 extra kids. So Ontario's situation is just such a nightmare because of the large class sizes, because the, the money that they've given to this is not obviously enough. And the only way that you can make this work is if you have enough teachers, which they do not because the teachers are pegged to the, these like ridiculously large classes. And so I know there's a lot of anxiety for parents and I hope, you know, anyone that's listening to this, read about how it happened in Quebec. It is not for sure that it's the end of the world that schools are opening. Like it, it's not a given that your child will get COVID and get you get COVID and you'll be sick for the next year. That's not necessarily going to happen. But it doesn't mean that the government needs to be let off the hook. They need to make sure that classes remain small, that there are more teachers to teach these classes, and they have to feel like there's political consequences if they don't listen to the will of parents. Um, and that's very hard right now because I know everybody's burnt out. I mean, I feel uh, just as burnt out as everyone else having had my kids home <laughs> for so long. So, you know, solidarity to the parents trying to figure that out. But um, I do encourage folks to, to read into the global research on education and kids. And, and it, it, it's not it's, it isn't the end of the world, but we do definitely need to fight to make sure that the right decisions are being made to make this as safe as possible. Speaking, by the way, uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show to Nora Loretto, uh, who is, as I described her, kick-ass feminist journalist, unionist um, out there doing fun things, uh, both on social <laughs> media and in, in print. Uh, and uh, and wanted to talk to you, Nora, really, uh, first and foremost, about the state of journalism in Canada, the state of mainstream media. Um, you've experienced it firsthand. Uh, where are we at? I mean, I, I, I'll get into it after I hear your first thoughts. So go for it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not good. <laughs> it's really it's really not good. Uh, we we have a, a system of journalism that is predicated first on making someone a profit and second on delivering the news. Uh, of course, the CBC exempted from that one of the rare, although, you know, ubiquitous uh, voices within the media, the mainstream media landscape. But when you're trying to make money off of news, the, the reality becomes then that it's less important to get that news delivered. And during a pandemic where news organizations should be rising to the challenge, should be um, going into deficit, a profound deficit to be able to deliver what's really, really important, you know, telling us about this crisis, telling us that this crisis is disproportionately affecting Black communities, Black healthcare workers, poor healthcare workers, poor communities, uh, and actually tracing these stories uh, in, in ways that are not simply rattling off the daily reports that we're getting from public health, which is what we're getting, uh, they're not able to do this. And they're not able to do this because they are in such a, a state of a crisis that um, I think, you know, I have a podcast with Sandy Hudson and, and we explored that this week. Uh, we are, you know, tra uh, uh, forecasting that this pandemic might actually spell the end of mainstream media in Canada as we know it. 
because it just cannot continue under the logic of making profit while also trying to serve the public good. Those are incompatible. And the only reason why it worked for so long in the post-war period was because there was a different model of advertisement. There was a different model of where people got their news and people relied on their daily newspaper. And, you know, as someone that still gets a daily newspaper, well, I did. Um, when my newspaper uh, declared bankruptcy, the, the workers took it over. And so there's now a, a, a co-op of six daily newspapers in Quebec. The newspapers are in cities like I'm in Quebec City, Gatineau, uh, Saguenay, uh, and there's, there's three others. They uh, took the profit model out of it and to save the newspaper during the pandemic because they were hit like everyone else because they still rely a lot on revenue. They unfortunately cut our daily newspaper, but they were able to say what the weekend newspaper is still really important. And the most important is making sure that we are telling these stories for our communities and we are so much richer, you know, for it. So there, that's one side. The other side, of course, is that there's an allergy in the mainstream press for a diversity of opinion. And, you know, it skews to the right. So you will see a kind of diversity of opinion on the right. But by and large, even if it challenges the status quo from right wing logic, it's not going to be published either. And so, you know, we've got a, a news industry that's able to cite the numbers, rattle off what public health is saying, rattle off what politicians are saying. But that piece of analysis is is so pretty much gone that we are relying on finding analysis somewhere else. And I think that, you know, we imagine news as being, this is where you find out like, you know, uh, what's, what happened with this car accident yesterday, what happened, you know, in my local community or whatever. But that analysis piece is actually like, I would say more important because analysis is what allows average people to not need to be experts about certain things. Analysis allows you to not look at the daily COVID infection rate and go, oh my God, 80 people. That seems like the end of the world rather than knowing, oh, 80 people is better than yesterday. It's worse than this and putting that into context. And so when we lose analysis, we lose oh, that, that engagement hook. That is the only thing that our mainstream press really has to be relevant to us. And so as we've been losing that, we've been seeing analysis go into different places. You know, we're seeing a boom in podcasting. We're seeing uh, new websites like Passage, uh, which is a place that I'm a columnist at right now uh, up here. And we're seeing this on the right as well, which which is actually kind of like, to me, the real red flag that that they really are in crisis, that, that even right-wing writers are not getting the jobs, they're not getting the places to place their, uh, their opinion, and that they too are going to alternative sources uh, to, to deliver the news. So I, yeah. I'm pretty pessimistic about what's, what's going to happen in the mainstream press, but I am pretty optimistic about people's ability to, to create their own media and to take back that narrative. Okay, well, let's talk though about, um, since you were talking about the right wing media moving away from print, um, let's talk about like, you know, organs like Ontario Proud. I mean, yeah. with, uh, with huge following, uh, and this is of course mirrored in the States uh, times a hundred, but, uh, but this is a question to you as a socialist, I'm, you know, long outed as a socialist, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, what, what happened to the left that, the momentum to working class and class-based politics has skewed right. Um, I, I watched, I mean, it sounds bizarre, but I watched like a, 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 it was a, you know, everybody's watching whatever they can see on Netflix or wherever, um, but it was a, a somewhat documentary about the Symbionese Liberation Army and Patty Hearst and that story. And I thought, 
remember the good old days when it was the left-wing groups that carried guns, you know? Right. <laughs> but I mean, you know, like, but so what, like, where did we drop the ball? I would love to hear where you think we dropped the ball because I can only see this as someone who has never really seen that ball up in the air, right? I, like, the the proliferation of, of not-for-profit in the 1990s and on the Canadian left, everything from the Council of Canadians to the CCPA to Rabble to, uh, you know, there's a lot of them. They, they, they did good work and a lot of them came out of the struggle, constitutional crises and the struggle for uh, against free trade and the struggle to need to have left-wing analysis of what was happening because at the same time, of course, we were not seeing, like we were starting to see that fall out of the mainstream press and so we needed to create a, a alternatives. But there's been, I think, a bit of a problem of a lot of these left-wing organizations where then they started to become so focused on existence that they forgot that there's a, a there's a mass that they have to appeal to that there's broad-based organizing and you know as a religious person you obviously understand that phrase preaching to the choir as a former choir director i know how what it's like to be preached at which is uh i always thought it was very funny i was an atheist working in the catholic church as a music director and it is um, it is fascinating how uh, that um, that fight for self-preservation under the pressures that neoliberalism wrought in the 1990s delivered us a, a decade in the 2000s where everything was just kind of crumbling. You know, where activism was still happening. I obviously got active in the, in the 2000s. The biggest anti-war march happened in 2002. Uh, sorry, 2003, and then everything collapsed or, or, or kind of collapsed. And then, and then you start to just realize that it's all the same people at these rallies. And then you go to Labor Day in Toronto and you realize like, oh my God, actually, these are all working class people, but they're here because there's a, a free access to the X. Okay, so then, there, then the real issue is we completely lost that connection between speaking, speaking to them. So I think that, that combination of neoliberalism, and I actually write about this in my book, um, thinking about the feminist movement, and I think that there's parallels to other social movements. It wasn't just neoliberalism. It was also the, the mainstream left's inability to deal with white supremacy within the left. And that inability meant that average working class people who were not white didn't see themselves in there in what organizations were ostensibly there for them um and that's a double that was a double blow that destroyed national feminized feminist organizing in canada and i think it's also the reason why so much of the successful movements that did arise out of that movements against uh islamophobia anti-racist movements and then of course like the movements that emerged later on like idle no more or black lives matter that they kind of cut the white, white supremacy question out of it entirely because it was like no these aren't going to be white-led movements and and in some cases there's actually no space for white uh, spokespeople for white organizers in, in high profile roles. And actually we need you to do this grunt work to drive this car, to do the, you know, the pickups or whatever. Um, and I think that's very, very positive. Um, and I think that through that activism, we will see a, 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 some sort of reconnection with the, the, the broad uh, working class. But that does of course require us to find ways to communicate with the working class as well. But I'd be very curious to, to, to hear what you think about that. Uh, well, uh, two things came to mind as you were speaking, and one of them uh, certainly is is the dropping of the ball at organizing. And I I put this at the feet, um, not that I don't know many of them and consider them good folk, um, but at, at, at the feet of uh, the heads of our unions. Mm. Um, like what 
many of our union heads have become way too cozy with the heads of the multinationals that they have to deal with and way uh, and, and very much estranged from the rank and file. So, for example, the NDP, uh, you know, the best thing about the NDP to me is it's been sort of trying to be our Labour Party and has represented union unions, but if it represents only union leadership and not rank and file, and the problem is union leadership has never even been able to deliver the vote of their rank and file to the NDP. So that that shows how badly uh, that kind of education work and that or, that grassroots organizing has gone on. Mm-hmm. And never, not to mention the fact that there are less and less union members, period, and that they need to broaden that base and organize the disorganized, right? So there's that. And then the other, and then the reflection of that in the NDP is that the NDP is skewed right and has tried to be, you know, the NDP would love to see the Liberal Party gone and they take that role, you know, using Great Britain as an example. You know, wouldn't it be nice if we just had conservatives and the NDP and government? This is a pipe dream that they've had for decades that they still have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's nonsense. It was nonsense, you know, at the get-go. So instead of coming out and being a socialist party, um, if, if Bernie Sanders can call himself a socialist, why can't our our leaders, as a come out, call yourself a socialist, be a socialist party. Uh, where is, for example, the NDP saying defund the police? Yeah. Those three words that are the core demand of Black Lives Matter and the uprising, it seems to me, should be coming out of the mouths of the leaders of the NDP. Instead, you get three paragraph graphs of all sorts of if sends and you know redistribution. Got it. Uh, but this is that kind of trying to, and it never works, and it's mm-hmm. never worked. So it doesn't even work to get them elected. Never mind, does it have any principled basis? So I'm talking too much. I want to hear from you. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to go back, go back to you, and talk about um, two two big issues right now in the news and. Um, uh, and one is, since we we're talking about Black Lives Matter, one is the uprising. And mm-hmm. our city council in Toronto couldn't even get 10% defunding passed, and in fact, gave more money to the police out of that vote for body cameras. And to com- contrast and compare it, we always think we're better than the states, but to, for some of the things that are happening in Minneapolis and other cities in the states. Um, so, and the press, where's the press on this? We have CP24 with ex-cops reporting the news. Um, talk to me about the, the the mainstream media on Black Lives Matter. Yeah, well, I think um, we are uh, further ahead uh, than where we were in 2016, when uh, Black Lives Matter, of course, made headlines with uh, the, the tent city, and then later on that year, um, you know, stopping the pride parade. And, and so I think it's important to take stock of those kinds of uh, signposts along the, 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 that, that trajectory saying, wow, like not only uh, has Black Lives Matter, of course, been absolved of what people considered to be uh, the sin of blocking a, a parade that always has delays of 45 minutes to an hour. My God, if you've ever been in that parade, it's like, uh, that's a normal delay in that parade. <laughs> it's so so, so long. Um, but uh the fact that defund the police is so popular. Like, I'm not sure if you saw this Ipsos poll, but 51% of Canadians say they support defunding the police. And if you look at at people who responded age 38 and younger, it skews far higher. And so what that tells me is that uh, there is a massive divide between who reads and believes the newspapers and who does not. And, you know, and we can already see that sanitization happening within the mainstream press saying, oh, well, defund the police doesn't actually mean defunding the police. You know, the Global Mail literally had an editorial that said that it's like it's a bad slogan. 
kind of good idea. Uh, we should defund the police by funding the police differently. And it's like defund does not mean that, uh, but thank you for trying to sanitize this movement. Um, and I think that they can tell that it's not working. And so rather than trying to do that work of sanitizing what the call is to then turn it into something else, you know, co-optation is a very normal thing that the right does uh, to, to radical demands. They ignore it and they ignore it because they think that they drive public opinion. And what we're seeing is they drive a certain kind of public opinion. They drive it with a certain kind of person, but they are not driving it with the majority. And um, so that's very interesting. That that says that 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 these newspapers are so out of touch with where average people are that it doesn't matter that CP24 just repeats the talking lines from Cam Woolley, who's the former OPP uh, spokesperson. Uh, because no one's listening to it. No one's buying it. So I'm very excited by that divide. I think it's really, really, really good. Um, but the problem, of course, is that it takes time for public opinion to then sway political demands. And, you know, we will never see uh, defund the police be said by the liberals. That I think is pretty obvious. I think that the conservatives are in a very good position to try and say defund the police and then usher in something worse, like, as you say, body cams in Toronto, or, you know, the member um, from uh, in Alberta, the, the United Conservative Party member, former Wild Rose Party member, uh, Todd Lewin, who is like, oh, what we need in Alberta is a militia. I'm not sure if you saw that. Right. He serves this motion saying we need to have voluntary core, uh, a voluntary core in every community. But his defense for why they needed uh, voluntary officers to do police work sounded like it came out of the defund the police movement, which was because it doesn't make sense to have police doing traffic stops. It doesn't make sense to have police doing emergency response. It doesn't make sense to have police doing mental health work. So we'll just get Jimmy down the street to do it. It's like, OK, like. Interesting. So I think that that's where the conservatives are going to see this movement and they will try to like further militarize our, our world under like the guise of defunding the police, which will be very confusing to some people. But it doesn't matter because they also aren't necessarily driving public opinion either. Um, and then that is where the NDP needs to step up. I mean, the NDP has the ability to put the pressure on um, certainly in Ontario as the official opposition, they could be doing that. And, you know, Ontario has its own police force and, and, and funds municipalities and, and, you know, has that direct connection to policing. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that that hasn't happened. And, and I know, like, I know that the NDP is small seat conservative. I know the folks who run the strategy within Queens Park. I've worked with some of them and I know like, like you literally have to set the house on fire sometimes to get them to get out of the house. Um, and so I don't know what it's going to take uh, from the more radical members of the, of the, um, of the legislature to try and convince the party to take those positions. But I suspect that that won't even be enough either, that they'll need to see this as being life and death for the party before they start to make it their issue. But I mean, again, if there's anything that's more obvious about how irrelevant the mainstream press is it's on this issue and it's on how um it's on how they only understand black analysis black uh, commentary through the lens of talking about like black life in canada and not having someone who is black be an expert in economics or be an expert in like anything politics policing uh, immigration uh, healthcare, like whatever right and um and that's just a tenet of white supremacy as well. And it will be it, like those organizations will not address white supremacy unless they are literally forced to. And I'm not exactly sure what that will take if they'll be forced before they even, you know, stop existing. 
speaking to here on the Radical Reverend Show, speaking to Nora Loretta, a uh, fantastic journalist out there doing the right thing uh, in a world that doesn't seem conducive, especially in the mainstream media, often to it uh, in terms of journalism. Uh, very quickly, don't have much time left. I want to talk about the, the seeming absence of coverage about what's happening in Portland, Seattle, in the American cities. Like there's full scale resistance, rebellion and the state using mercenaries to combat it. And there's silence. I think I heard one line on CP24, for example, which is probably the most watched media here, um, uh, just saying uh, declared a riot in Portland. I mean, that was mm -hmm. like their coverage kind of thing. What is going on with that? Even the mainstream press in the States is there. You know, yeah. where's the silence on that? Yeah, if the Canadian press doesn't have to, not the Canadian press, if the Canadian media doesn't have to talk about something, they won't. And it's actually not that different to how they cover protests in Canada, right? They only pro cover protests in Canada when they have to. Uh, if you look at the G7 that happened in Quebec City two or three years ago now, uh, I lived I lived right downtown. I was literally in the mix with helicopters overhead and tons and tons and tons of riot police who were waiting for a 300-person rally because the G7 wasn't happening in Quebec City, it was happening somewhere else. And it was it was so awkward to get to that we heard nonstop preparation news, all this ridiculous money being spent. The, the RCMP purchased something like $27 million worth of new vans that they didn't even use. And then they had to auction them all off for a fraction of it because you can't you know resell vans very easily, certainly not for the original cost. And where was the coverage of the protests? There was none because it was so embarrassing that they that they went through this for a 300 person march through the downtown, which happens all the time here, which also doesn't get coverage. Um, it's it's just it's an embarrassment, right? Like there was always that rumor at the CBC would never cover protests like they had a policy against covering protests unless it was uh, tied into some sort of broader news hook. That's kind of shifted where you will see CBC cover a protest now. It's like, my God, congratulations. But I think that, you know, there's a crisis of legitimacy of liberalism. And, uh, you know, you can see that all across the United States in, in, in like literally every measure. You can see liberalism is collapsing. And the, the, the big stalwart of liberalism in Canada is the mainstream press, the CBC, it's the Global Mail, it's the Toronto Star, it's CTV Global, all of these, all of these uh, news organizations. And they do not see it coming. I mean, it's there, right? We like vans are 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 capturing protesters and 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 disappearing them in the United States. And you know, they're maybe emerging a couple of days later, but it's like, what the hell is this? Um, but I mean, again, there's similar things do happen in Canada. We saw we saw not that dissimilar stuff happening during the G20 no in kidding. Toronto. We know people were picked up off the streets in vans and arrested and then found themselves in jail a couple of days later. Uh, and, you know, we also know in Quebec City, even though that 300 person rally didn't have anything happen, I had friends that were arrested and they were banned from entering the downtown for two years before their charges were completely dropped because they're bogus. That means you can't take the bus from one city into the city to the other because it passes through the downtown without violating the orders against you to go downtown. And it also means, of course, you can't go to any protests because they all happen at the National Assembly, which are also downtown. So these things are happening in Canada. The, the journalists in this country are not equipped to talk about it here. So they're obviously totally not uh, able to talk about in the United States. And because liberalism is their lifeblood, the literal thread on which they hang to exist, they can't. They just can't because it's, it's, it's uh, a complete threat to the, the core of their reason to exist, their existence, um, and then their, their permanence. 
Well, thank you, Nora Loretto. I can't believe the time is gone. Um, it's been fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for your take. Thanks for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And by the way, out there in the listener land, uh, we love to hear from you. So give me your feedback. Let me know. Always respond. Uh, and of course, I'll send them on to Nora if you have a question for her. Totally. Uh, thanks so much. And when can they hear you and Sandy? Uh, we broadcast at sandyandnora.com and all on all podcast platforms. Just look up Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. And every uh, episode comes out midday on Tuesdays. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Nora. Thank you. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. And of course, you can hear us on podcasts as well as on CIUT every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. We broadcast from Buffalo to Barrie, Kitchener to Coburg, and we love to hear from you. So let us know. Uh, you just heard from Nora Loretto. Uh, and now I'm delighted to have on the show uh, Rich Jensen. He's a he's working as a cultural strategist and consultant based in Seattle since the 1980s. He's co-founded and contributed to several world-famous music labels and is the executive for Resonate, which is, and this is the first time I've heard about Rich, so you can fill us in a bit, uh, a EU-based fair trade music streaming cooperative. So tell us a little bit about that for starters. Well, sure. Uh, basically, we're the people Spotify, if you will. Uh, so uh, we're organized as a co-op. It started as a Kickstarter project uh, founded by Peter Harris out of Berlin in about 2015 and has been organized as a, um, a friendly society registered in, uh, in Ireland uh, in 2016 originally. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're member owned. Um, we, all of our streams are paid streams. Our rate works out. We've got, it gets a little tricky. Come to the website, resonate.is, if you want to see what we're about. Um, but our historical rate of pay is double the rate that Spotify pays. Costs nothing for artists to join. Um, there's a little fee for members. Um, and we're basically trying to create a space that's uh, dignified on the web, where I I identity is respected, um, where our use of the Technology is not being leveraged to other ends. Um, and we're also just in general trying to advance the intersection between cooperative governance, culture, um, and technology and um, going worldwide. So anyway, that's, that's, that's what I've been, the, I've had the privilege to um, help with the organization um, since uh, Peter uh, had his second child and had to step away last year, um, so uh, about a year now, and um, we have, it's, it's a whole other story. We could go long on that, but, but you know, it's, it's kind of a midlife, I don't know how much experience you or your listeners have had with midlife in an organization. Um, you've got, you, you don't have the baby fat to burn anymore, and you've got to kind of power down and go, change, change and open up. And so that's the process that we're driving. And we've got just great people and um, come check us out. That's, that's fantastic. I'll start there. Absolutely check it out. Uh, now, uh, the reason I wanted you on the show is I really wanted to speak to somebody who's on the ground 
in the U.S. in Seattle, which is where sure. you are. Um, but to give us some vantage point, I was speaking to Nora just before we went to break uh, about the lack of coverage up here, of real yeah. coverage of, of what's really happening. The fact that you got you know sort of mercenaries in the streets, Trump's troops, and um, and. Uh, the the real uprising that just continues has has continued yeah. with black you know from, from Black Lives Matter but hasn't really abated. Uh, so I'm going to talk about that. What's it like? What's really going on in Seattle right well, now? Well, look, I got to say thank you so much, uh, Sherry, for uh, giving me the chance just to share my experience and my views. I have to say they're my own. Um, I you know the things I'll share with you about my town very much motivate me in the work I was just talking about with the co-op. You know, I think my whole life has been set toward expecting some real transformation because I think a lot of us have, have seen the world just headed down um, an unfortunate path. People can argue about or discuss, you know, is it is it 500 years deep? Is it deeper than that? Is it uh, more recent? Is it since we were burning carbon? You can get into... All we know is that this is a time where really to be hopeful about, you know, the next 20 years or so is to imagine different ways of rewarding people, of spending our time, um, and of, of, of uh, sort of sharing what's, what's there's, there seems like there's plenty in the world, it's just not necessarily in the right places. And so how do we, how do we uh, deal with that? Um, so... That's my that's my point of reference, and I've been in this town, which curiously enough has handed off from world's richest man running Microsoft to world's richest man running uh, running Amazon.com uh, in this really tertiary town um, that really a lot of people certainly 20 years ago didn't know much about. Uh, it's only it's less than 200 years old. A lot of towns are much older than that. So we have very much um, a connection to um, prior societies here. Uh, we're named after an indigenous person whose father met and saw George Vancouver come into the bay here, um, you know, who is a very significant person in, in this area. Um, this area was one of the most densely populated in North America. Um, at least 100,000 people lived here before uh, pretty much wiped out to a certain degree by, uh, by European-based diseases uh, in advance of, of the people showing up here. So um, a, that's really the context in which this city operates. And, um, and, you know, you pointed out talking, you know, your concerns about local media. I would say, you know, I'd say this is not a local situation. I think one thing that, um, is helpful for people because we do live in cities. They're almost like parts of our body. We, they're, and they're bigger, they aren't about real estate. We've had cities for 20,000 years, long before there were, was real estate. You know, Cities are a place where culture accumulates and where it's, a, it's noisy. Um, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's supposed to be a chaotic place that nobody's really in control of and where um, where, where the culture has a chance to flourish. So anyway, um, to look at, so at my point in that, that is my point in saying that is that all of us in our localities have, all of us in our localities have an aspect on a 
global condition, we're all in cities and we all have crappy local media and we all are like money is driving us to do the worst possible things with our time. And it's very scary. Um, and we're doing the worst possible things with our fear and anxiety in these cities, you know? So it's, you know, you mentioned before we came on the air, there was a vote recently in Toronto about defunding the police to a certain extent, 10%. 10%. Now, it's not a conspiracy that has, every, I don't know how many dozens of towns around North America and perhaps the world are having their city councils vote on these same things. There's no one great place where everybody's going, hey, how much are you going for? That's not happening. What is happening is that for whatever reason at this particular time, what made sense a few years ago to, to make a priority out of all of our city budgets to protect property, to protect the interests of the previous generation or whatever it was, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pandemic condition. We're all dealing with that. And, um, and so, um, uh, so we have the same kind of struggle and that's really been the point of the spear of the struggle that's happening in Seattle. And I'm, 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 I'm sorry to come in from such a distant view, but you know, we have, we have indigenous people in our communities. We have people from all over the world in, in the town here. Um, they are typically not a part of the dialogue. Um, they are, they, they, many of these people constitute the people who, uh, some people call houseless, other people call homeless. We have 5,000 people every night sleeping, um, under bridges and, uh, you know, that's the count and looking at other societies, that's just intolerable. We have, we have as many people in our town sleeping out every night as some whole countries in Europe, you know, and it's, um, so this is our condition. Well, I was going to say, I mean, going back years, I mean, Seattle was, uh, you know, uh, on international news for being the center of resistance and widespread protest. And it seems True. like that's happening again. True. Uh, you and Portland seem to be the places right now where the uprising is really focused and is mm. happening most broadly. Um, and so... You know, and, and as you say, you've got the richest and you've got, uh, you know, significant poverty as well. So so talk to me about what's happening on the streets right now. I mean, um, let us know, because, again, it's sure. very difficult to get news out. Sure. Uh, other than like social media is where most people are getting their news down, podcasts and things. Sure. Not mainstream press. But but even then, you know, we, we see the, the images of horror, you know, uh, unarmed protesters against uh, militia. Um, what's yes. happening? What's happening? Well, locally, um, where you are. Yeah. Um, so let me say two things. Uh, one, you know, speaking about the the travesty of local media. I mean, that's that's that was certainly a case uh, during WTO in 1999 that I think you were referencing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have these media uh, that uh, in the case of television, for example, here, it's probably similar to you, but we have, um, they have public licenses to use the airwaves and to, and the fact that they use that license in a way that obfuscates and confuses and creates sensationalism and violence where it's unnecessary. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a horror show. So this, this idea of not knowing what's going on because you're in Toronto, that's not the case. 
Most of the people in the city of Seattle don't know what's going on because they read the local newspaper, Seattle Times. They watch the local TV shows. These are uh, either either very wealthy longtime families in town or they're entities like Sinclair Broadcasting, which own 200 stations around the country, are very much lockstep with the, the Trump vision of the world. Um, and and so, so the police union gets all the time. Um, there may be uh, local um, uh, spokespeople for, for various uh, communities in our, in our town, but, but the ones that actually are leading the streets, they don't get invited to the meetings. They don't get the airtime. Uh, the more acceptable people do by somebody else's criteria of what's acceptable. So don't think that you've got, you know, we're, that anyone's picking on Toronto. I, I'm telling you, I could, the fact, what I, what my views, I could have a, an argument. Most of the people on my Facebook page or whatever, they're, they're, they see it through a different lens than I do. I look at it in terms of we are going through a, a radical global transformation that is at least 300 years deep, um, where indigeneity is speaking again. People who have had societies that were able to function in their local community with the species and the lands that they lived on, though that's been, um, you know, they've got thousands of years of experience. There may be some good models there for how we take the planet forward for people and all these species and all these things that we have to make it another 20 years or so. So that's the real struggle that's going on. And I just, I'll shout out, if you want to know what's going on in Seattle, check out two organizations that have come up have had the, some of the largest, most interesting marches, um, were the best voices in, uh, everybody heard about CHOP and Chaz and so on. Um, it was amazing how, honestly, I think Seattle has a knack for kind of uh, capturing global attention that's unearned, but somehow a little thing in a couple of city blocks, everybody's talking about it. Uh, you know, it happened in my time with grunge, you know, so I'm kind of used to it. Uh, you know, uh, these kind of crazy stories because for some reason we're just situated in, in the global culture where, that, where it's easy for things to go viral or something. I'm not really sure. Um, but Decriminalize Seattle and King County Equity Now are the two organizations, if you're on Twitter or in Facebook and you want to see what people are doing, I have to give a shout out uh, to Omari of Converge Media, who here in our town all during the CHOP uh, business uh, confrontation. So sorry, tell, tell our listeners, uh, what, what, are, what are you talking about when you're talking about CHOP and CHAS? CHOP is an acronym that stands for the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, which um, there was another name before it, but that was the name. And, basic, and, and again, these things get told the wrong way. People talk about CHOP or the people in CHOP or the protesters who were out you know, that's 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 the um, that's a very dense arts community. It's long been um, uh, the gay neighborhood and a place where people for a thousand miles around would run away to to try to find a place to live in the city. Um, that's that's that neighborhood, and um, it happens that in the last twenty years or so, there's a precinct, uh, um, a police precinct um, command center. Um, that's situated right in the middle of the Capitol Hill neighborhood. Um, and that happened to be 
just the, the, the site of contest, not only uh, during the last month, but also uh, 20 years ago in uh, WTO. That was exactly almost the same block where, for whatever reason, people from the neighborhood uh, and the police squared off. The police used all kinds of tear gas, which of course is drifting into people's apartments. Children, old people are, are hacking uh, at this poison gas that's coming into their apartments. It's ludicrous. Well, anyway, what happened was because of its proximity, really, we have to give the shout out to Minneapolis and what happened in Minneapolis and coming from, you know, rest empowered uh, George Floyd. But um, that precinct, of course, the, the people burned it down. And so because of its proximity, there was an assumption, I think, on the part of our leadership here that the protesters would burn down the, 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 the East precinct. And so what, what, they, what the, the, the mainstream papers will say, that the protesters took Capitol Hill and then they couldn't deal with it, right? They took it and they had all these, they were trying to have a utopia and before you know it, it was all crazy and people started getting shot, blah, blah, blah. What really happened was the, the East Precinct Command decided to pull out and left and abandoned the space to anarchy, okay? They left it and left the people to their own devices. The people that got shot there, the police and fire wouldn't come in to rescue them. They had to be taken out by neighbors to make it to the emergency, the ones that lived, you know? And so it wasn't about claiming space. It was, don't gas us. Don't behave this way. This police department that we have in this town, like so many towns across North America, is the number one budget item of our city. A city where the richest man in the world lives, who is handed off from the previous richest. Now, to be honest, Bill Gates lives across, he lives in the suburbs over there, but all of his business, his dad worked over here, whatever. This is our community where uh, there's so much wealth and 5,000 people sleep homeless every night. Um, we can talk about, in like every town, we have, um, we have our people who, 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 were, who, who were killed unnecessarily, who have been our heroes in this movement, who we grieve on these streets. So instead of allowing the grief, instead of allowing a conversation about radically um, changing priorities for the city, you had night after night after night after night, the police putting thousands. They, I think the number I saw was $6 million worth of overtime and, um, and weaponry were spent on a few hundred people saying, this is insane, stop. Well, then what they did, because it was two weeks after, after uh, Minneapolis, I believe, and a lot of people suspect, I mean, this is kind of conjecture, but I think they expected to have a fire that if they left, the people would burn it down. Well, that's not what happened at all. They set up a stage. They, we met, there were, there were people giving some of the meetings that I described before. And you, if you look up Converge Media, which is a local media, and I'm sure you have similar, every town has people who are out there um, who are, who, who are um, more or less trusted by different people, um, wanna give people a fair shake, um, in our town, um, Omari and Converge Media did a great job 
Um, I'm not gonna, you know, he's just a guy from the neighborhood who kept his camera on. He's a good video producer. He had some uh, journalistic instincts and one can go to Facebook and see for yourself all of those weeks that are recorded. Um, so that's the kind of media and that's the kind of media we have. And so that's, that's my perspective. Um, and I'll say again, Decriminalize Seattle and King County Equity Now are um, the two local organizations that have come up that from, you know, everyone, everyone should have their own um, intuition about who the leaders should be, who's credible. Um, I'm just sharing you mine. Um, um, the, the, those organizations happen to be, um, I mean, a, a lot of the people out of those organizations have helped to um, on the ground struggle for 10 years or more now with different um, criminal justice investments um, and, and police investments. There was a $250 million um, youth jail that um, was budgeted in the last 10 years. And high school students from Rainier Beach High School um, um, are least Caucasian, I'll put it that way, are least Caucasian, are least white of the high schools in this, in this town, the one that happens to be furthest south on the very border of the city. Those high school students began a movement against the $250 million uh, new juvenile detention center that was laughed at by everybody in leadership in this city. But they were out there again and again and again. And five years ago, just as they started construction on this center, the, the politics changed. And the King County, uh, we're in King County, Martin Luther King County. It, it, was, it was renamed after a, a, actually a, a teacher of George Vancouver's originally, but it was renamed Martin Luther King County. In any case, um, here in Martin Luther King County, the county administration, at the moment that they started construction on this building, they agreed that, that the policy was passed that we should have no youth in detention. But we have already built, we've already gone forward on this building that we have to build that's a detention center. But our policy, our long-term policy should be that we have no detention. The struggle has continued and continued and continued. And finally, it's, it's actually a kind of victory that uh, just in the last week, new county policy is there's five years less that uh, there will be any youth housed in this detention. They're looking at how can we use it for the community, which they could have asked the community 10 years ago. They could have asked. Yeah. But this is so, and I know this struggle is not, Seattle may have the headline, you may have seen it in social media, but I say, take this stuff and look at your own town, put your own lens on it. And then, you know, if there, if there can be stories, like I'm telling about the, 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 the Family Justice Center, find your own stories, find the story in your, in your local town. Those stories are there. The, there are people who are very confused, very scared about the transformation that has to be happening right now. And unfortunately, they control so much of the media. 
Um, I know you know this, and I know your listeners. Yeah, know it's, this. Ca- it, it called it uh, called white supremacy. And and by the way, if you're it just is. tuning in, um, you're you've missed a great show, but you can hear it on podcast always, as well as on, of course, the IET. Uh, I'm talking to Rich Jensen here, and Rich is among other things executive for Resonate, which is uh, EU-based fair trade music streaming cooperative. Um, as he says, the poor person Spotify. Uh, we're talking, and he's based in S- Seattle, so we're starting. But it like there's something about Seattle. I mean, you mentioned 20 years ago with the WTO, um, and honestly, uh, in the eyes of the world, I would say from, from mm. you know, there was 1960s Paris student sure. riots, and of course, the civil rights movement in its first incarnation, and or one of their incarnations, and then, right. then we think WTO, Seattle. Uh, Out of nowhere, when people were saying, where are all the activist youth? There they were in Seattle. And now again, uh, Seattle. And you you mentioned it's not that big a place. Like it's so obvious, you know. uh, Okay. There's something, something you need to show the world. And this is um, this is some local stuff. And, and, you know, um, and maybe it's just the kind of aw shucks way that um, I don't think I'm the only one that has this tendency. But look, WTO. Seattle didn't, I mean, it was because Bill Clinton came to WTO. It's because WTO had all the ministers from all over the world. And they were about to sign away um, all the, you know, basically any democratic legislation by any uh, member member nation um, through, you know, for the world. And so what what was interesting, what, so... All of the people that were resisting that global movement came to Seattle. So, I mean, I, like I say, Seattle has a knack for, for, <laughs> for uh, getting the credit. But, um, you know, it's because what really mattered about Seattle, not only was it one of the first times and actually, I believe it was Vancouver or, or uh, I think there was a there was like a G7 or G8 just a few months before. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, And we saw that's kind of and then also in London, there was a summit before that, where we started to see these the way that the police dress now this riot gear stuff, and these these shields and everything um, in its modern aspect. And so of course, those images come from Seattle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I was extremely fortunate to have it ha- land on my doorstep. But um, I have to say, you know, tens of thousands of people were in town because of that that event that was going on. Um, there were particulars about how it got out of control, I'd say, um, because of the personalities involved in the mayor and the police chief at the time. Kind of they were old baby boomer types who really didn't want to be on the side of the oppressor, uh, but found themselves in that position. And maybe they let things you know, who knows what happened. But but. Um, uh, anyway, they're, they're, well, it as looks a local, like, I'm giving you I my know, views. I know. So, Richard, we just have a couple of minutes left, so sure. I have to wrap it up. But, I mean, yeah. um, just to say that uh, keep it up down there because <laughs> we we look, and it, it's happening everywhere. I mean, this is global phenomenon coming out of Black Lives Matter um, yes. that, I, that I, I said earlier, I mean, has has sparked and, and worked more reforms in a matter of weeks than all the uh, political commissions and, you know, (laughs) police looking at themselves up here. It's the SIU reports on the police activities, Um, all of that. uh, And there's been 
hundreds of those uh, have done much less than the uprising has done in a matter of a few weeks to change the scenario. And we just hope it keeps going. So uh, by way of concluding, Rich, thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And, uh, and, and yeah, keep telling us what's going on down there because we're fascinated. It's not that we don't have it going on here too, but hey, WTO, hey, Seattle and Portland, um, you're, you're rocking it. Keep doing it. <laughs> Thanks for being a radical reverend. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me. And take care, Rich. Bye-bye.